Amen. You can have a seat. I was waiting for you to say it. You were waiting for me to say it. Everybody was waiting for both of us. Uh, morning, everybody. Happy Labor Day weekend. I want to say thank you. I got a few thanks uh, today. First of all, thanks um, for, uh, for being here. And thanks also, especially to parents, that maybe you, sh- you, sh- you showed up today and you uh, didn't hear about or didn't know that we... Uh, today because of the holiday weekend and you know there's so many people that that leave along with we have a pretty strong child protection policy here at our church for nursery and preschool and all that it's hard to 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 get uh, enough workers and so we took the Sunday off for our kids ministry and so thanks for uh, for your grace in that um, also uh, I want to say thank you to you as a church for the way in which you have I just loved people really, really well in the last couple of weeks in the loss of Pastor Dave. Uh, I've been overwhelmed uh, with, uh, with gratitude from people, whether it's family members of the Gallaghers or uh, even um, our funeral directors that just say, man, Century just loves people so well. That's who we are. And so thank you so much for that. Thanks for how you've shown care to us as a staff as well as we've uh, we're missing Pastor Dave and uh, adjusting to, uh, to life without him. Um, just a couple other things. Uh, I have to say a huge thanks. We are, we are days away from, uh, from being able to, to finally move into our For the City Ministry Center down in the south end of town. And so it's been about a year of renovations and prayers and smash thumbs, whatever else comes along with it, but this ministry center that we as a church believe is it's for our city so that we can make an impact to seek the welfare of the place that we live in. And so we're really excited about it, but there have been, uh, I can't wait till we're done with it and we get into it and we can just uh, tell all of the stories that have taken place over the last year of people that have just popped in to say, I've been wondering what's going on in this building, and they find out that it's a ministry, and all of a sudden now they're connected to Missio Church and hanging out with contractors who are just like, this is our favorite project that we've ever done because we just get to hang out together, and it's been frustrating at times because of all the supply chain stuff and all of that, but it has been such a labor of love, and I just cannot wait for all of you to see it because God has been doing some incredible things. And there are a lot of you in the church family that we have to say thank you to because there are people that show up on a weekly basis to just take care of projects and to clean. We've had people donate uh, everything from uh, concrete to the landscaping to materials being used inside. And it has just been a God, it's God-sized project that only God could do, but He's used so many of you. Actually, Missio Church, our church plant, is down there right now uh, doing kind of the final cleaning from uh, top to bottom today uh, in preparation for just a few other things that need to happen. And, uh, and we're going to see ministry really take off in that building. So thanks for that. Uh, and then uh, also I want to say a big thanks because as you all know, for a number of years, we have been a part of uh, a project that we call YEEP, the Youth Economic Empowerment Project uh, for uh, Cameroon, West Africa. Cameroon is in the middle of a civil war and in the midst of it, Uh, Hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced and many, many young people have lost their families. 
their homes and their livelihood, and so they're on their own. So the Yeet Project, we began that along with our, uh, our friends in, at the Cameroon Baptist Convention Youth Department to really say, how can we help train young people in some type of a skill or a trade and then empower them to go out and start their own business? And so the Yeet Program was born, and since then we've uh, been able to train hundreds of young people who have horrible stories that have uh, taken place because of this crisis. But just this morning, I woke up to this picture. This is from my friend Cosmos. Uh, and um, is it in there? There we go. And, and uh, he wanted us to know that yesterday they completed uh, this train, the YEEP training of 37 uh, hearing and speech impaired young people who've been impacted by the war. And so yeah, he sent some video and uh, the whole thing is the training for the entire week was done in sign language and just incredible care uh, for each of these young people who now, uh, not only them, but their extended families, their brothers and sisters, uh, are now going to be able to survive, to eat and to, to grow uh, and to flourish because of the YEEP training. And all of that is because of your financial giving to the YEEP project. So I just want to say thank you so much for continuing to love people so well all over the world. Uh, if you would, let's go to Matthew chapter 9 as we walk through uh, the book of Matthew today. Just a few verses, verses 14 through 17, as we talk about, I just want us to, I'm, I'm setting the stage just by talking about putting on your Sunday best. Uh, there's this phrase, the clothes make the man, right? that Mark Twain has kind of been the one that's been attributed to it, or Abraham Lincoln, depends on which internet you use. Uh, but um, uh, ever since the beginning of time, I don't know if you've thought of this, your clothes say something about who you are. They describe you. We find that right away in Genesis chapter 3 as Adam and Eve sin. They were naked and didn't even know it. didn't even bother them. But they sin and all of a sudden they know that they don't have clothes on and they're ashamed. And so they grab fig leaves and they sew them together and they cover up. Their clothing said a lot about what they believed about themselves. And it's been like that ever since. My clothing today tells you that my wife is out of town, right? I, I, did, I did my best. Right? She, and she took my daughter, my two people that go, hey, that, that, probably not that today. I actually had to go online early this morning and look at last week's sermon video to make sure that I didn't wear this. Right? Uh, I don't know any better. Uh, but the clothes make the man. Um, uh, Mark Twain had said it. Uh, he's, it's attributed to him. But actually, if you follow, just look at that one phrase. Uh, you follow all throughout history. Uh, and you will find over and over again that people have this belief. Shakespeare actually wrote in Hamlet, the apparel oft proclaims the man. You can even follow it back to 60 AD. There's a Roman teacher. His name is Quintilian. And he said to dress with the formal limits gives a man authority. That's interesting that he said that around 60 AD. is a really famous uh, Roman scholar because around 60 AD the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and said what? He said put on the full armor of God. Right? What you wear says a lot uh, about you. So today I just want to walk through this text but I want to just kind of paint a picture of just a wardrobe of uh, what it is that, that we should put on as followers of Christ. If you would, if you're able, let's stand together. Let me read for you this text. The disciples of John, well, then the disciples of John came to Jesus and said, 
Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now it doesn't say this, but I'm sure that at the end, John's disciples went, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) So let's talk about it. You can have a seat. Let's start with sackcloth, right? Not the nicest outfit that there is in the world. Jesus was an anomaly. We've been talking about this ever since the beginning of Matthew. Jesus, God himself, present on this earth. And he comes and on in his ministry time on this earth, in his teaching, he's trying to help people just to change their way of doing religion. Religion had fallen into just practice, action. Uh, not really a whole lot of thought to it. It's just routine, tradition, whatever it is. Uh, and Jesus had been teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. It was, look, you, you've been taught one way, but, but let me tell you, it's a whole lot easier than that. There's a whole lot more meaning to that. And so in his teaching and in his actions, people begin to question everything that he does. He had just gotten done. We studied this last week, but remember he called Matthew a tax collector, uh, a sinner in the eyes of all of the Jews. He, he had called him to follow him as a disciple. And then he, Jesus went to Matthew's house and sat and ate dinner with a bunch of sinners that in the eyes of the religious people would make Jesus dirty, that, that should take away his credentials as a rabbi. And so they, the, the Pharisees questioned him on it. How dare you go and ew, eat at the home of a, a tax collector? Well, since questions were being asked, then here comes John the Baptist's disciples, his followers. Now, John the Baptist is in prison at this time. And, and John the Baptist has already told his disciples to leave him and to go follow after Jesus. But, but there's still these, these stragglers, the ones that haven't left John to follow Jesus. In other words, they don't see Jesus yet as the Messiah. And so they come to Jesus and they go, hey Jesus, we have some questions. Uh, why don't your disciples fast like, like we do and the Pharisees? Which... If John the Baptist would have heard them say that, he would have lost his mind. Because he would have said, how dare you lump yourselves in with the Pharisees? John was the first one to approach the Pharisees and look them in the eye and say, you are a brood of vipers. He's not a friend of the Pharisees. John didn't like them at all. He didn't see the way that they lived actually as righteous and holy living, but but that they were self-righteous in the way that they lived. So for John's disciples to say, hey, why don't, why don't you guys do things like we do, we and the Pharisees do? The Pharisees were not religious. They were self-righteous. And they asked because fasting was routine in the life of the followers of God. This is not a passage about not fasting. It is actually part of a spiritual life in 
in ancient times and should be a part of our spiritual lives. Fasting, that word fast, in, uh, originally in Old Testament, where, where it's mentioned dozens of times, is the Hebrew word psalm, and it means to cover your mouth, to close your mouth to something. And the first time that we ever find fasting and its purpose is right away in the book of Genesis. As God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and he says, this world is here for you to enjoy. All of these animals are here for for your food. All the plants are here for your food. So you can eat anything that you want. But there's just one thing that I'm commanding you. There is a tree in the middle of the garden that you will psalm, that you will cover your mouth from that you will not eat, you will withhold from. And, and, and as we look at the story of the fall and what happens with God and man, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden each day. He was in communion with them. They had relationship together and all was well as long as they covered their mouth, did not consume of this tree. But as soon as they did, then what happened? Relationship with God was broken. Separation took place. There was, there was no longer peace uh, on earth. Why? Because they, they broke that psalm. They broke that fast. And, and so the understanding is as long as we withhold from, as long as we cover our mouth from, uh, then we can expect that God is going to relate to us. Here He is now. Um, <laughs> perfect timing. <laughs> uh, so, so it's this idea that fasting was not doing something so that you could anticipate what God was going to do. And we find that then all throughout the Old Testament. That, that people would fast in a, during a time of repentance. That God would forgive them and God would come and He would bless them once again. Moses fasts for 40 days when he's on the mountain and spending time with God because he says, I don't need to consume anything because the presence of God fills me. Jesus fasted when He was out in the desert in preparation for the ministry that He would begin when he came out of it in Ezra chapter 8, there's a fast that was declared to seek the way that God would have us live. It was always about, I'm going to, I'm going to psalm, I'm going to, to stop something so that I can see what God wants to start. In the middle of war, or in the beginning of a war, the nation of Israel would call for a national fast. Why? So that God would give them victory. Over and over and over again in 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat declared a fast so that he could set himself apart to hear what it is that God wanted him to do as a leader. Even as an outward sign of repentance, it was a begging for God's forgiveness and a desire for him to empower to do better next time. So, understanding what a fast was for. The only time that fasting was required by uh, God in law, we read about it in Leviticus 16, uh, Leviticus 23, was, only, was for the Day of Atonement. It was the one day a year that the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, uh, to pour the blood of the sacrificed animal over uh, the Ark of the Covenant. There was begging of forgiveness by God and His blessing upon people 
uh, one day a year, a covering over of their sins. And so when the high priest went in to make sacrifice, everybody on the outside would fast. God, do something. We repent, but do something great in our lives. Later on, the temple would be destroyed uh, and people began to fast that the temple would then be rebuilt, which then turned into a fasting on a regular basis by the Jews for the promised Messiah that would come. So it became a practice that fasting was done out of a proclamation to God, we know that you're going to come, we know you're going to do great things, and so come and do it. But it really, by the time Jesus' day rolled around, fasting was come Yeshua, come Messiah uh, into our presence. The Pharisees actually, of course because they're Pharisees, didn't wait just for the Day of Atonement. They actually fasted two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays, so that they could be seen by all, as Jesus had already called them out on, uh, in their own self-righteousness. But it was a continual desire that if we abstain from something, God's going to do something great. Ultimately, He's going to come. But the problem was it just became routine for them. John's disciples, why don't your disciples fast? Like we do and like the Pharisees do. Are they, do they not care about the Messiah that is going to come? Are they not calling out to God for Him to do something great? And you can see why Jesus responded the way that He did. He said, I'm here. That's why they don't fast. You're fasting for, what, for God to do something great. Hello? Greatness is in your presence. I've come. Isaiah 58, 3-7 says, Cry out to God when we fasted, but why didn't you see it? We starved ourselves, God, but you didn't listen. And God says it's because when you fasted, you, you thought you were doing something great, when in reality you went and lived the worst days of your life on your days of fast. He said you oppressed others and you worked. You fasted in strife with others. God says the fast that I'm looking for is one that comes out of a life that actually is impact, that's ready for me to do something great. I'm looking for people that fast and then go and set the captives free. I'm looking for people that fast and help the oppressed. I'm looking for people that fast and then give their bread to the hungry. I'm looking for people that fast and then open their homes to the homeless. I'm looking uh, for people that fast and then take their clothes uh, and give them to those that need to be clothe. God says, you fast because you want me to do something great. And he says, I want you to fast. And then I want you to do something great. And I will bless it. So Jesus responds with this strange illustration when they ask. He says, why, why would wedding guests mourn when the bridegroom arrives? You can imagine John's disciples like, I don't think he understands the question, right? But Jesus' response was, was one, it was intentional. Ancient uh, marriage uh, traditions were that, um, it, it's not like ours, right? Where, where, you know, you find somebody, you, you know, whatever high school, and you, you think that they're cute, and you start dating, and, and you kind of develop this relationship. That's not the way it was in ancient times. It was usually, usually between the fathers, 
of these young adults. And, and so uh, a deal would be struck and a bride price would be agreed on. And then the, the dad of the, uh, of the man would give him whatever that price was. And, and he said, now go to that young girl's father now. Now's the time. You're, it's time for you to get married. Now go and pay the price. And then he would go and he would pay that price to the father and the father would say, okay, go and and get your bride, and so that young man would go find that young woman, and then he would say, well, I, I guess we're engaged. My name's Joe, you know, right, whatever. Nice, nice to meet you. And so we're engaged, but they were betrothed, and there was a betrothal period. And that betrothal period was the, uh, a time for uh, two groups of people to get ready for a wedding. One, the young man would go back home to his father's house, probably in another village, and his job, his task, because of the way that family was in ancient times, his task was to add a room onto his father's house. Uh, the, the, the word would be a mansion, right? Um, so are you getting the picture? In my father's house are many rooms. There are mansions for us that are being built in glory. We're being added to, to the father's house. That was the young man's job. And, and it wasn't until the father, his father said, the work is done, now go and get your bride. Only the father decides when the bridegroom is going to return for his bride. Now, while that's taking place, everybody back in the bride's hometown is giving their all toward this celebration. Because it's, it's not a two-hour Saturday night dinner and dance for a wedding celebration. This was a week long, even longer. And, and people couldn't wait. So everybody in town invested in it. Everybody helped her prepare. And, and they did it quickly in anticipation for when... It, they don't know when the, when the house is going to be ready. They don't know when the bridegroom is going to come up over the hill. They were just always ready, prepared for when... And they were always watching, always looking. You can see why Jesus tells us this. That He's the bridegroom and we as the church are His bride. Always prepared, getting ready for that day that he's going to return because it's going to be the greatest celebration that anyone has ever seen. Are we dressed for it? Are we ready for the wedding party? And so Jesus says, why would, why would the, the guests at the wedding party mourn when the bridegroom was with them? And actually, the word that he used is not just guests, but, but it's, it's actually groomsmen. Why would the attendance of the groom, disciples, why, why would they do anything but be joyful and celebratory while when the bridegroom shows up? This is a time to party. Hosea 2.19 says God's promise to His people, and He used wedding language, says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. People anticipated that. It was, it was always this picture of a wedding. And so, so Jesus says, so the groomsmen aren't going to cry when the bridegroom shows up. It's time to, they're excited. They've been looking forward to this for a year. They've been saving up for this, right? They haven't eaten in three days. They're, they're going to party. It's interesting the way that Jesus uses this wedding language. Why would he do it? Because Jesus is a genius. And he knows what's taking place. John chapter 3, so the Gospel of John, uh, is a, another telling from a different angle of Jesus' interaction uh, with the disciples. 
Well, John is having a conversation with his disciples in John chapter 3 because his disciples are starting to freak out. When Jesus shows up on the scene, John's disciples come to him and go, John, hey, we hate to tell you this, but some of, some of your followers are leaving and they're going to follow Jesus. And John's like, that's the point, guys. Right? And they're like, but we thought, we thought maybe you were the Messiah. We thought maybe you were the one that had come. And John's response to them in John chapter 3 says, a person can only receive what they've been given from heaven. I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent before him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The groomsmen wait and listen for him and are full of joy when they hear the bridegroom's voice. And then John says, that joy is now mine. My mission is complete. Right? So, so these two passages connect. Jesus is really saying, remember what John said about, uh, about the bridegroom? I'm him. John knew it. John said, my, my mission is done. It's complete. I was here to, to be here to make sure that the party got ready, that when the bridegroom came up over the hill, that everybody would celebrate and know. And so then now John steps back. He said, now it's time to celebrate. And, and Jesus is saying, so fasting is about about." mourning and making yourself low in anticipation that God would show himself, well, I'm here. Here I am. John finishes, uh, John chapter 3 with verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John is saying to his disciples, so go follow Jesus. Go follow him. He's exactly what you've been waiting for and looking for. So his disciples should have known better. They should have seen it. What they were waiting for was right in front of them. They needed to enjoy it, to embrace it. I guess I would just say to us today, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you believe in who He is, my question would be, but are you living into the joy that you have Him in your life? What what impacts your soul more? The condition of this world or the fact that the Savior of the world came and chose you, rescued you, that sin has been defeated and the grave has been defeated? How are you living your life? Are you sad at the wedding or are you celebrating each and every day and longing and begging God to do it's something great. It's a great heart check for us to have. Jesus adds at the end of this statement about the wedding, he, he says that um, the knowledge that he would one day be taken away from them. He says, don't worry. Um, they're going to celebrate as long as the bridegroom is with them, but they'll mourn. The fasting will come when the bridegroom gets taken away. This was, this was new. Well, at least... If they weren't paying attention to their scriptures, it was new. But when Jesus would say those words, taken away, they would have stopped in their tracks and shivered a bit. Because there was always a question about what Isaiah was talking about back in chapter 53. As he's talking about the Savior of the world and the one that would come. And everybody gets excited about it. There's going to be a king that's going to come. And he's going to conquer this world. And he's going to conquer sin. And he's going to give us a new name. And this is going to be absolutely incredible. But Isaiah says, but he will be oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. 
And by oppression and judgment, He will be taken away, cut off from the land of the living, and cut down for the sins of man. Jesus says there is going to come a time when, when I, the bridegroom, I will be taken away. Which would have been really confusing to them. But it was a proclamation that I am the Savior that you've been looking for. The one that would be struck down like a lamb led to slaughter, whose blood would be poured out that your sins could be forgiven so that you can be brought back together in a relationship with God. We read all throughout the book of Acts that after Jesus' arrest, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, as the church begins, the apostles, those original disciples, fast over and over and over and over again, begging God to do something great. And He does every time. Finally, Jesus then says, you know, if you, if, if you don't understand it yet, he says, let me give you a couple stories that will make it more confusing for you. So he uses these parables, one of, uh, of a patch uh, on clothing and another of wineskins. He wants to drive the point home. And, and, and the way that he portrays this, these parables that he uses, is, is we don't necessarily understand it because we don't always understand the culture of the day. But what he says here, people would have just thought, duh. Like, this is so obvious, almost laughable, the way that he says it. He says, no one would ever put a new patch on an old garment, uh, or that gar- a cloak or a robe. Nobody would ever take new fabric and sew it into old, tattered clothing. One, you just get rid of the old, and you put on the new. Or you, or you take a, an old patch of cloth that is already stretched out. You put a new piece of cloth on an old robe as soon as, as you start to wear it and wash it and that fabric starts to stretch, uh, your robe is going to be in shambles, worse than it ever was uh, before. Then he talks about wineskins and, and he says you would never put new wine in an old wineskin because new wine still needs to ferment. It needs to grow and it needs air and it will expand. And if you have it in old worn out wineskins, Jesus says it's just going to explode. You're going to lose everything. You put the new into the new. You've got to get rid of the old. And in it, Jesus is, is teaching something so much deeper that that he'd been addressing uh, and toward his own disciples, toward the people and the lifestyle and the, re- the traditional religion of the Pharisees of the day. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, guys, he's, he'd said it all throughout his Sermon on the Mount, the old way of doing things doesn't work anymore. You can't take me as your Savior and Lord and Messiah and still think that your ritual, your tradition, your actions are going to earn you any favor with God. It doesn't work that way. I am the one that chooses you. I give you righteousness. I save you. I rescue you. You can't mix the two anymore. It's not Jesus and. It's just Jesus. His new approach to ministry was not you we can tell because of the way the Pharisees hated him Jesus approach to ministry wasn't fitting into the old 
system. They needed to change. He's expanded so far beyond fasting. It's this tradition and law that they were obeying, which is great. I mean, it's a good thing. They believed what they were doing was right. The problem is that they missed everything that it was about, everything that it was pointing to. All of the Old Testament law was pointing to when the Messiah would come, but they didn't believe that Jesus was the Savior, and so they were missing it. And Jesus said, look, I didn't come to tell you that the law is bad. I came to fulfill it. I came to show you actually how you do live into it. But you don't live into the law so that you gain something. You live into the law because you have gained something. And the more Jesus would teach, what he's saying is, look, the more new I give you, the more it's going to tear at your robe. right? The, the more uh, that I teach you, the more it's going to stretch and burst your wineskins. And it's all going to seem worthless to you. So embrace the new. Lenski, the commentator, says that, that Jesus is saying, so take off the old robe and just accept the new robe of righteousness that Jesus has to offer. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, look, works don't work. They're not going to earn you your salvation. Eternity is a gift that has been given by God alone to us. And Paul says, and you died to the works. You died to the law when you died to Christ, when you gave your life over to Him. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we can serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of written code. In other words, traditional righteousness is not righteousness in Christ. What Jesus had been teaching was really, that, that, like I said, everything you've been doing now it was, was to point you to Me. Now that I'm here, just have Me. And the reason My disciples don't fast is because they no longer are begging for God's grace. It's here. I'm here. Isaiah 61.10 says, I'll rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will worship God, for He has clothed me in garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom wears a priestly headdress and adorns the bride with jewels. If you know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, you've, you've surrendered your life to Him. You said, God, I'm so tired of... of trying this activity to try to earn myself into your good graces. And I realize, God, that I can't do it. I realize the only thing that can take my sin away is you yourself, your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross, blood poured out for me. We receive that and it's taking off the old clothes and it's putting on this new robe of righteousness. But then it's not just to sit around in. It's to wear out. To make an impact on the world, the clothes make the man. The question for us today is, are we wearing, for us, worn out tradition? Go and make disciples, Jesus said. Disciples are not made as we oftentimes maybe once thought they were. We come here to grow in the Word, which we love, so that we can follow the way that God wants us to live, but then we can take it out into this world. Discipleship happens out there. 
We think that if we just keep attending things, then, then we're growing as a disciple. No. Jesus said, follow me and go and make disciples. You can sit in as many Bible studies and sermons and Sunday school classes as you possibly want, but that is not making disciples. You might be growing, but Jesus says you need to go and make disciples. Stop falling into the old way of doing things. But it's time to go because tradition, we can say this, 20, 30 years ago, people walked through the doors of all the churches in Bismarck just because we were having church. And it's not happening anymore. People are driving by wondering, there's a lot of cars, I wonder what's happening in that building. They don't know. So we need to go out and we need to tell them. But it's got to start by us understanding the joy of our salvation. Being dressed in the robe of righteousness. That we throw off anything that's going to hinder us and we run hard to follow after Jesus, to love Him with all our hearts, and then to love people really, really well. The clothes make the man. Are you wearing worn-out tradition of works for salvation? Today, today, just let that go and just say, Jesus, you can have me. I believe in who you are as Lord and Savior, and I throw off everything else, and I just want to have you. And if you've received that, if you've already received God's best, then live into it with great joy. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your beautiful word. There are times, God, when we read scripture and, and maybe it doesn't always make sense to us. It's a little bit confusing. So thanks for moments like this that, that we get to just expand on it. I thank you for drawing me uh, into your presence to really dig deep so that I could present it well. But I pray, Father, that the words that were heard this morning were your words, was the move of your spirit in our lives. That we would understand what we've been being taught all through this passage, that Jesus, you are God, that you are the Savior of the world. You're the best that there is, the one that we long for. We pray that we would not just receive you, but that we would that we would live a life with you to change the world. Amen.